welcome to this episode of Want to Hear Something Interesting, a podcast where your hosts Scott Ahern and Chad Knight discuss a topic using research and personal opinion. The topics will be wide and varied, but approached with the researcher's eye. Will everything we say be 100% accurate? Probably not, but we are striving to be as accurate as we can be. Every month on the 1st, a new topic will come your way. Occasionally, though not usually, there may be some language of the adult variety. Listener, be warned. Now, here are your hosts, Scott and Chad. Hello, and welcome to Want to Hear Something Interesting, episode 15. My name is Scott Ahern, and as always, I'm here with my good friend, Chad Knight. Konnichiwa! And today, we put our heads together and decided to talk about something near and dear to our hearts, and, it seems, sadly lacking in many facets of life today. Intelligence. Well, Scott, Scott, this is not a political uh, podcast. I know, and I wasn't going to mention anything about Uh. that. But lack of intelligence is all around. How many times a week do you see a car have to slam on its brakes because someone steps out from the sidewalk without looking because their head is bent down, focused on their phone? That's true enough. In fact, this afternoon I saw that very thing. Okay. But before we go down that rabbit hole, let's get back to what we had originally envisioned, talking about the different types and aspects of intelligence. Now, Chad, I believe you were planning on talking about animals and artificial intelligence, right? That's correct. Awesome. I did some digging into, I kid you not, scientists working on analyzing plant intelligence. Plants. Really? I know, right? Then, I also wanted to talk a little about different notions of human intelligence, such as IQ, the Stanford-Binet test, muscle memory, and some other aspects of the term that don't necessarily fit with what most people think about when they hear the word intelligence. But, for right now, let's start with what you found. Which do you want to start with? Animals or AI? Well, I think I'm going to start with animals. Because AI, though really interesting... When we get around to talking about that, the definition that I found of artificial intelligence is not what we think about most of the time. So, let's start with animals. I'm going to start off with a broad definition. So, animal intelligence. It's a collection of cognitive abilities in animals that are typified by learning, problem solving, and higher order cognition. Current researchers tend to argue against a phylogenic system and look at the challenges faced by each species, as opposed to comparing each organism to humans. So to break that down, animal intelligence refers to a group of abilities that enable problem solving by animals in a given environment. Alright, so then we have to talk about cognition. So animal cognition, the inference that animals are able to problem solve and find ways to adapt to the environment by way of trial and error learning. Although not directly observable, the inference can be made that animals are active constructionists in problem solving, as opposed to being at the mercy of the environment. So to wrap that one up, animal cognition is an argument, is that an argument can be made for animal cognition, based on the ability of animals to solve problems in the environment. And then we go one step further into animal learning. So a research paradigm in psychology that attempts to explain how animals learn and think. Studies in this paradigm are most often highly controlled due to the lack of complexity seen in most non-human animals. Isolation of learning processes is often less viable in humans due to increased complexity. So to wrap that up, animals learning refers to the process by which animals are conditioned to respond to certain stimuli, as well as research paradigm whereby researchers study this. An, an example of this would be kind of like Pavlov's dog. Right. Okay, so they learn through trial and error and also through reward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, classical conditioning. He, For those of you who don't know Pavlov, he was the guy who made dogs drool by ringing a bell. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> 
Yeah, the dogs were conditioned to associate the bell with the presentation of food. Basically, Pavlov rang the bell, gave him food. Rang the bell, gave him food. After enough repetitions, whenever he rang the bell, the dogs expected the food, and so they'd start to drool. Right. Because dogs salivate just like we do when in contact with food to help break it down. So the last thing that we're going to talk about is animal tool use. The use of extraneous external materials by animals solely for the purpose of solving problems. Until recently, the use of tools was thought to be confined to humans. However, psychologists have demonstrated that apes can move crates to get to bananas, and birds are also able to use external materials in the creation of nests. So that one is animal tool use refers to the concept of animals utilizing extraneous materials to solve problems in the environment. Now, I don't really have this in here, but I did read an article where they talked about a certain type of monkey, a macaque monkey. Okay. And I want to say it was India or Southeast Asia, somewhere in somewhere in that area. Yeah. So what happened is they would give these monkeys different colored metal coins. They didn't. They. I mean, they weren't real mon- money, but and then they monkeys learned that if they gave one of these coins to a human, they would give them food. And it actually worked up in a short amount of time to find out that the monkey could pay a female monkey mm-hmm. money for sex or some other kind of sexual favor, which. I'm like, well, that didn't take long. No, I I remember. I think I remember seeing that article. Yeah, it was uh, it was really it was an interesting read, but it was one of those things where you're like, really? I mean, wh- what is the monkey gonna do with the money? But it's not that. It's it, they learn bartering. Right. They, they learn the the concept of representative value. Right. So it it's not I can eat this, but this can get me a different banana. things that I want. Yeah, this can get me a banana. Mm-hmm. This can get me, you know, rice. This can get me a girl. This can mm-hmm. get me, you know, whatever. Yeah. So, so this can get me a banana. This can get my banana taken care of. Or something like that, yeah. So, and in fact, I also, on a more wholesome note, I have run across a few articles with otters. Okay. And a, a lot of people love otters because they're, they're so, so cute. cute. And they, they really they are. They are. Do you know but, they hold hands when they sleep? I did not know that. They hold hands. And you know why they do it? Because otters are in water. Right. And especially sea otters will hold hands while they sleep because they don't want to drift away from their partner. That would be a very good plan, not yeah. drifting away, yes. Yeah, I mean, it's, so I'm like, mm-hmm. aww. Yep. <laughs> but anyways, apparently many otters, even in the wild, have developed the knack of, uh, because a lot of times they'll try to eat like small fish, lizards, things like that, but occasionally they get mollusks and other shellfish. Mm-hmm. And if they can't pop the shell open... They have actually been documented either banging the shell on a rock or setting it on a big rock and taking another rock in their paw and cracking it open. Okay. Right. So that's the that's the whole tool use thing. So I'm going to talk about five animals with higher intelligence than, honestly, I ever thought possible. Then you can decide for yourself how intelligent they really are. And actually, I'm going to talk about five because one of them I didn't put into my list is Coco the... Uh, she's a gorilla, is she not? Uh, if it's the one I'm thinking of, yes. Yeah, the one that sign language mm-hmm. does the sign language. Now, Coco is a gorilla. She has been in captivity pretty much her entire life. I think so, yes. But she was taught sign language, and she far exceeded what they thought they could teach her. I was watching a thing online here not too long ago where they were talking to her about the state of the earth. And, of course, I mean, this gorilla does everything. She watches TV. She's had her own pet cats over the years. Um, you know, all these different things that we think of as solely human things, but she understands. She can't verbalize, obviously, because right. she doesn't have the right type of vocal cords, but she can understand. 
And I think she's somewhere around 750 signs that she understands and can do. So they were they were talking to her through her trainer, of course, about the state of the world. And she said that basically it came down to the world is sick and we need to take care of uh, of Earth. And I thought, OK, she's a monkey. I get it, you know. And then they went on to talk to her about how people treat the Earth. And she was like, basically, she said, individual people are smart, but man is stupid. <laughs> and that's the word she used. She used the word stupid, yep. you know, yeah. because well, have we... you ever seen the um, sociology quote about the intelligence of crowds? Mm-mm. Uh, there's one. Oh in... yeah, from I saw it's in Men in Black too. The individual person is intelligent, but the mob mentality is just. So something like that. There's actually, I once saw an equation. It, it was kind of a joke, okay. but it, it makes an awful lot of sense when you think about it and see some mob mentality. But it's basically the intelligence of a mob is equal to the IQ of the dumbest person in it divided by the number of people in the mob. <laughs> <laughs> I, I can believe that. Because like I said, in Men in Black, I think um, Agent uh, K says something to the effect of um, when... Um, they're, they're recruiting Will Smith's character. And he says, you know, why don't we just, why don't you just tell people? And he's like, people are smart. And he's like, no. It's like, well, he goes, people are smart, but man is stupid. <laughs> and that's the whole mob mentality right. thing. But anyway, let's get into these, these super animals I found. All right. So Alex the Genius Parrot. Now, some of these I never heard of before. Alex is actually one I had happened to hear of before, so... When a parrot says something like, hi, or I love you, you obviously assume that it doesn't really know what it's saying. They're just mimicking human words in the same way that they'd copy the sound of a barking dog, or even a cell phone ringing. Now, that one I've never heard of. Actually, I've heard, I don't know about parrots, I've heard of parakeets or minor birds. Really? Doing ringtones. Oh, that would be annoying. Yes. So, they're, they're just like crappy little tape recorders. I mean... But Alex the parrot was different. Though he could correctly identify 50 different shapes, recognize numbers up to six, distinguish seven colors, and understand quantities such as, or qualities such as bigger, smaller, same, and different. By the end of his life, he was even getting close to grasping the concept of nothingness, which is a very human concept. Right. That's that's a tough one even to explain to people sometimes. It is. It, it really is. <laughs> I mean, try to explain somebody, you know, the Big Bang Theory is a perfect, what did it come from? Nothing. Right. You know, and everybody's like, but there had to be something there. But there wasn't. Exactly. <laughs> you know? So, Alex didn't just associate a word with a specific object. He could generalize, which is usually something only humans can do. For example, when shown various keys, he could recognize that they were the same thing and even point out differences in size and color. That bird behaves more like a human than half the people I saw on my drive to work this morning. He really does. It's almost like he stepped out of a Pixar movie. One day, as Dr. Irene, his trainer, was closing up the lab, Alex said goodbye by telling her to be good. Irene replied by saying, I love you, to which Alex answered, I love you too. He then asked, you'll be in tomorrow? Irene assured him that yes, he'd see her tomorrow. The next morning, Alex was dead. Okay, that's just creepy. That's sad. That's sad. That's yeah. sad. Although, it is. the story of Alex reminds me of this great joke. I don't know if I've told it to you yet or not. Okay, well, you may have told it to me. Probably not to our listeners. Okay, so this burglar breaks into a house. And he's creeping around and he comes into the living room and he's starting to unhook the TV. 
Okay. And he hears this voice from the corner of the room that says, Jesus is watching you. And he looks around and he doesn't see anybody. And he's like, who's there? And he hears again, Jesus is watching you. And so he's looking around, he's walking, and he sees a bird stand with a cover on it in the corner. So he goes over and he pulls the cover off the birdcage and there's a parrot inside. And the parrot said, Jesus is watching you. And he's like, are you Jesus? And the parrot says, no, I'm Moses. And the burglar says, what kind of fool names his parrot Moses? And the parrot says, the same one who names his Rottweiler Jesus. <laughs> yeah, I suppose. That would be that would be scary. Yes. I mean, I love Rottweilers, don't get me wrong. They're, they, they're, are, they are awesome guard dogs. They are awesome guard dogs. They are beautiful dogs. They are muscular dogs. Yes. Which is why I think so many people fear them. Mm-hmm. But... I have a my my stepbrother has a Rottweiler and she is the she wouldn't hurt a fly. No, I mean, it's like any other dog. If they're trained properly, right. treated with love and respect, they are phenomenal companions. Mm-hmm. If you abuse it, it's going to bite the crap out of you. Right. Or you can't expect to teach it to be a fighting dog, which is I think what happens in a lot of cases. But you can't teach it to be a fighting dog and then be like, you have to be nice to the kids because it doesn't work that way. Right. All right, so let's move on to the next animal. Well, this is actually animals, or actually not even that, insects. Okay. So bees that solve complex math problems better than humans. So the traveling salesman problem is all about finding the shortest route between various points. Like a salesman who has to visit several houses and doesn't want to spend more gas than he has to. The problem is a lot harder than it sounds. Depending on the number of locations and the distance between them, It can take a supercomputer several days to figure it out, since they have to go through and verify every single possibility. Bees, however, can solve it in a heartbeat. How? No idea. (laughs) They just can. When researchers showed them a bunch of artificially controlled flowers, the foraging bees took one look at the place and were instantly able to figure out the shortest route between them. Yes, their tiny, almost non-existent brains were able to calculate all of the variables and solve the problem faster than a computer would. Apparently, it's just a matter of instinct. Foraging bees have to visit lots of flowers every day. And since flying is a pretty energy-consuming task for them, they need to be able to know the shortest route in order to survive. So if a salesman can't do the same thing, it's obviously because he doesn't want it hard enough. (laughs) (laughs) What's disturbing is that the exact method bees are using to accomplish this is still a complete mystery to us. Really, we have no idea how they do it. And perhaps it's time we started asking ourselves, what else do they know? Right. Well, I mean... Even in common English, we have the the concept of the hive mind, mm-hmm. which I believe originally came about because of observed behavior in bees, especially with the drones that went out to scout being able to come back and communicate things like distance and quantity of nectar available right. to the hive so that the rest of them would then go out and get well, the Well, they would send the, the proper number right. out. So, um, And here all this time, I thought it was the Borg. Mm-hmm. Now, as you know, I'm a huge Terry Pratchett fan. Yes. And in several of his books, the Wizards of Unseen University have built the world's first supercomputer. Okay. The primary interface is a gigantic ant farm. Again, kind of the whole hive mind mentality. Right. But its memory core is a giant beehive. Okay. I can almost see that working. Mm-hmm. All right. So let's move on to Willow the Literate Dog. Now, this one I knew nothing about, uh, but in 2009, viewers of shows like Tyra or The Today Show were introduced to Willow. 
a dog who can read, an ability which puts her at a superior intellectual level than most of the people watching the show she appeared on. Willow can understand the cards her owner holds up and obey the commands written on them. But that's an obvious parlor trick, right? I mean, well, not exactly. It turns out training a dog how to read is not as hard as you might imagine. Some experts point out that what Willow does isn't technically reading, at least in the way that humans read. But she can still recognize the shapes of words and understand what they mean. Wait, if that's not reading, then apparently I've been doing it wrong. <laughs> so an article points out that dogs who are learning to read sometimes make up, mix up similar words like tug and turn. So they can recognize individual letters, that tells us. And that there's no known limit for the amount of words that canine brain can remember. Some dogs are up to 30 words, meaning they could memorize the, inter the entire lyrics to... You should be dancing by the Bee Gees. <laughs> and this is where it gets scary. The author of the article that I was reading says that after she taught her dog enough words, she plans to, quote, place multiple words on the wall and teach them to focus on a single card through use of a laser pointer or similar device. Then I would see if he could match words into simple sentences to tell me what he was thinking or feeling. So giving dogs access to the power of the written word just isn't enough. We also have to equip them with lasers so they can express themselves. <laughs> so, I mean, that's really kind of a neat idea. And and it makes sense because what we think of as reading is just memorization. And Either symbol recognition. Symbol recognition because we'll go, because I can run across a word I don't know, but I can sound it out based on the knowledge I have of words that exist right? in, what, in my memory. What sounds the letters make, different combinations. right. And where that gets tricky is when you come across a foreign word and you sound it out in English and it's nowhere near what it's supposed to sound like. And then you read that word for years and then you hear somebody say it and you have no idea what they're talking about. Right. This one book I read as a kid had a character whose name was Aloysius. Okay. But I'd never heard anybody pronounce it. And so I always said it as Aloysius. Okay. Because it's A-L-O-Y-S-I-U-S. -S. Yeah. Makes sense to me. Yeah. So, I, I just thought that was really kind of neat. Now, the next one we're going to talk about, this one comes with pictures. And obviously, we can't show the pictures to the people out there. Not yet, but when we get our Eclectic Media Project website up and running, we'll post things like this to the website so you can actually see what we're talking about. Correct. But for tonight, you're going to take the part of the audience. Awesome. All right. So, we're going to talk about Michael the Painting Gorilla. So, teaching an animal how to paint isn't that impressive. An elephant was trained to paint a picture of an elephant holding a gigantic rose. Or perhaps a miniature elephant holding a regular rose, but whatever. Right. But he's still dumb. He's still dumb as a horse. I mean, he just, it's, he's just moving his trunk in the way he was trained. Which is why all his pictures look the same. Common sense dictates that only humans can produce art that is original and expressive. But common sense is dead wrong. According to experts, you can teach some animals how to be creative. Gorillas in particular are pretty good at that, as long as they have been trained to communicate with humans through sign language. So there's an element there that without it, they, they don't have the creativity. But the fact that they can start to communicate must awaken something in their brain or in their personalities. So if you stick a brush in their hands, get them to paint something, and ask them what it is, sometimes their answer will surprise you. Take Michael, a gorilla, and the author of a painting called Apple Chase. Okay, so this is the picture. All right. All right, I'm seeing uh, some brownish-gray shading and some swirls of a dark green and white marbling thing. Okay, 
So, crap. That looks nothing like an apple, does it? Nope. But did I mention that Michael used to own a pet dog called Apple? One who looked like this. Okay. Are you starting to see it? I'm getting the, the shape of the head. It, it looks like um, a Cocker Spaniel or maybe a Springer Spaniel. It has that mm-hmm. the mottled black around the white fur of the nose, black fur around the eyes and ears with a white stripe going up the forehead. To me, it looks like uh, well, the six-year-old, like yeah. a six-year-old painted the dog's head mm-hmm. or something to that effect. And did I mention that Apple was deceased at the time Michael made this painting? So he was able to remember. So dog. not not only did Michael reproduce the image of the dog from memory, choosing the colors himself, he also named it Apple Chase because he used to love playing chase with his dog. So he expressed his emotional anguish over Apple's death by painting a beautiful picture of his beloved friend. Also, did I mention that he was an ape and had a pet? It's a little crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about Coco and her cats. Correct. She's a crazy old cat gorilla. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Another time, Michael was asked to paint a bouquet of flowers, and he made this. Okay, actually, it, it, it looks, looks like... almost impressionistic. It, it's not defined petals, but it looks almost like a field of flowers seen from afar. Every, the fine edges are kind of blurry, but there's distinct pinks, there's distinct greens, there's distinct purples and blues. Yeah, the minute I looked at it, I thought a field of wildflowers. Mm-hmm. You know, and like you said, from a distance, it's not it's not sharp, but have you seen gorilla hands? Right. <laughs> I, actually, it, it kind of reminds me, there's the movement in art, the pointillist. Okay. Where you have to stand far back to see it, because if you get too close, you lose the, you actually get too much detail. That actually kind of reminds me of someone standing too close to one of those paintings. Oh, that could be, yeah. So what's even more impressive is that, Artist apes can also express abstract emotions. So famous talking gorilla Coco made a painting called Love. And it looks like this. It looks like kind of an orangish pink V with some deeper pink behind it. And the V is kind of rounded. You might even argue that it's a heart shape. Okay. So, and like I said, I'm not sure if that's supposed to be a heart or the firm red buttocks of another ape. <laughs> Either way, it's pretty impressive. Let's, yes. let's be honest. Gorillas have amazed me since I was little. I mean, I remember one of the coolest things we did when I was a kid. We went to the Milwaukee Zoo a couple times when Samson was there. And Samson was not an art ape by any imagination, but they are just so big and so muscular. And Samson used to, I think he got, I think he found humor in scaring people. Because he'd come right up to that window and just, you know, crack at it. Now, I don't know if you were around in the time of Samson. I don't believe so, no. Okay. Because, yeah, that would have been back in the... Probably the mid-80s. I yeah, I didn't come out to Wisconsin until 88. Okay, so yeah, and I think I, he I died like 88, 89, something like that. So, But, uh, yeah, Samson was, he was he was a local legend to kids. I mean, but uh, let's move on. The next one, and I believe the final one we're going to talk about here, is Rio the Logical Sea Lion. Okay. So humans are logical animals, despite YouTube's comment section's best effort to prove <laughs> otherwise. <laughs> If you're at a stoplight and you see the intersection light turn or intersecting light turn yellow, you'll start revving up your engine as you prepare to go forward. That's logical thinking in action. You know that if a light is yellow, then it's about to turn red, and you also know that if a light is red, then the other one is green. So you automatically associate the yellow light with going forward. So you're making a logical leap, something no other animal is able to do, which is why bears suck so much at driving. <laughs> That and they're from Illinois. Yeah, there's that too. <laughs> if you're listening in Illinois, 
It's a, it's a joke. We're in Wisconsin. Yeah. Deal with it. However, in 1992, we found the first exception. Rio, a sea lion. The least badass species called lion. I don't know. Actually, if you... I have a, a friend who was a psychology professor. And he okay. Was an ethologist. Uh, basically, he studied animal-human interaction. Okay. And his major field of study were the killer whale migrations in Washington State. Okay. But in the course of taking a couple of his classes, we also looked at um, aggressive actions of non-aggressive animals. And pretty much any animal, you surprise it oh, yeah. with its young, and it's going to go bananas on you. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I know sea lions are named lions because of their, their distinctive sound they make. Yes. They're, they're, it's almost a screech. It's not really a roar, but if you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. Yes, and you don't forget it. No. So Rio lived at the University of California at Santa Cruz and was known for being smarter than other sea lions. Perhaps feeling threatened by her intelligence even though smarter than other sea lions doesn't sound that impressive, to be frank, a couple of scientists decided to perform an experiment to find out exactly how smart she was. First, they showed Rio a picture of two things, a crab and a tulip. Then they showed her another picture of the same tulip and a radio. They wanted to see if Rio could associate the crab with the radio. And surprisingly, she did. This is called forward transitivity. And it's something no other animal has been a had been able to do up till then. Rio even managed to do backwards transitivity. Whatever. <laughs> that is, she was capable of associating the elements in reverse order, too. That might not sound especially hard to you, but then again, you aren't a sea lion. They tested Rio with 90 different shapes, 30 in each category, and tried to see if she could go back and forth between them. She aced the test. Oh, and here's the best part. They tested her again 10 years later, just for kicks, and she remembered everything she learned in the original experiment. As I, a teacher, I can tell you that's almost impossible with humans. Well, I was going to say, I can't even remember what the previous entry on this list was about, let alone what I learned 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I mean, honestly, you know you know the show, Are You Smarter Than a Fifth Grader? Yes. Have you ever watched that? Yes. Have you ever went, I'm an idiot? On occasion. Yeah. Plus, I mean, there's the board game version, which I've played. And yes. lost yeah, to a fifth grader. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> you forget knowledge that you had previously. Mm -hmm. It's just your brain only holds so much. Well, even though there's arguments that it's still there, you just don't know how to retrieve it. Right. But your brain can only hold so many active thoughts. And unfortunately, that's the stuff you learn the longest to go that go away first. Right. But that's what I have about animals. I mean, these five are obviously above average animals. Yes. But... Who's to say that we're just not looking in the right places and that animals aren't smarter than we think they are? Exactly. I mean, look at um, how Douglas Adams represented the dolphins in the Hitchhiker's Guide series. Well, and we and, know dolphins and whales. We know they're intelligent. Right. In fact, in a lot of cases, they're smarter than humans in, in, in the ability. They just don't talk like we do. Right. We don't understand them, so we're smarter because that is our personal or that is our species... Uh, Prejudice? Yeah, bias. prejudice, bias, mm -hmm. you know, whatever you want to call it. And I get it. And I'm sure dolphins look at us and they're like, they're f***ing idiots. <laughs> and I'll, I'll bleep that word. Yep. Yeah, but, it, it's like that um, cartoon that's been making the round, especially a lot the last couple of years in education circles, where you've got the human giving the test. It's about standardized testing, that one size fits all. And it's got the turtle, the goldfish in a bowl, 
the monkey, the elephant, and something else. And it says, in order to be fair, we're going to administer the same test to all of you. So you all have to climb that tree. And the monkey's like, yes! And all the other animals are like... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, let's move on. Now, you're going to talk about plant intelligence. I am. And a lot of what I was finding in the plant intelligence research actually comes from animal intelligence research. Okay. So I... And I got turned on to this topic, actually, while listening to the podcast Radio Lab, which I love. I have nothing to do with. If you have never listened to Radio Lab, go listen to Radio Lab. It's really cool. Okay. So, but they were doing a segment on plant intelligence. And they found this professor from the University of Western Australia's Center for Evolutionary Biology. Her name is Monica Gagliano. And according to her website... She is a research associate professor in evolutionary ecology, and she is an adjunct senior research fellow at the University of Western Australia and research affiliates at the Sydney Environment Institute of the University of Sydney. Okay. So she does a, a lot of stuff. She's, a she's very got a lot of words after her name. Yes. She's a very sought after speaker. Okay. A collaborator on papers and research projects because... Basically, she was one of the first ones to really buckle down and say, let's start from the premise that plants have some kind of intelligence that would be recognizable by people. How do we prove that? Okay. And so she did a few different things. One of the first um, experiments she did was actually something that's near and dear to plumbers' hearts around the world. She wanted to find out why and how plant roots are able to find water pipes. Oh, okay. And the... The generally held belief was that um, water pipes, because of the process of condensation, sweat on the outside, which, when you put them in soil, makes moisture in the soil. The plant tendrils sense the moisture, and they grow towards the moisture. And she was actually able to demonstrate in her experiments that it actually seems to be more acoustic, because she was able to show plant roots growing towards recordings of water rushing through pipes. Okay. So there was no moisture in the soil whatsoever. There was there were no pipes. That That's not really my question, though. My question is, how do they get in the pipes? They get in the pipes the same way that the flowers pop up through the concrete sidewalks in New York City. Vegetative strength is a lot more massive than we think it is. Okay. I mean, think about it. How tall are redwoods? Hundreds of feet. Yes. And what might be considered tree blood sap yes and so that tree can take the sap that's generated down around the root structure and pump it all the way up the tree just like your heart pumps blood through your body yeah it's, it's crazy i'm not I, I just i was hoping she had done that research in her in her <laughs> research because i'm like that's the one question because it's like okay i get it it comes down to the water yep but then how does it get in you know yep usually it, it Get, it will seek out cracks because a crack would have a higher water density. So it will seek out the denser water. Um, barring that, it'll just send more roots to it and wrap around it and eventually squeeze and crack. That's a, That actually shows an intelligence, I would say. Mm -hmm. Not necessarily an intelligence like you and I sitting here talking, but it would show an intelligence in the way of it knows what it needs to survive, a right. survival instinct. But continue on. Okay. So then she wanted to see if the plant could make some kind of distinction. And so she had a, a pipe with water running through it that was pressed up against 
the outside of uh, essentially a, a plexiglass box so that she could observe the roots. And because the pipe was outside, there's no way condensation could put water into the soil. So on one side, she had an actual pipe with water running through it. And on the other side, she had the recording of that pipe. Invariably, the roots went for the pipe, not the recording. Hmm. So they were able to distinguish between the actual and the recording. Now, if this were back in the 70s or something, you could say, well, okay, recording quality, so on and so forth. But she has the resources of a university at her disposal. This is really high fidelity recording. Yeah, I would say this would be digital of some sort. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, that's that's a little mind-boggling, to be honest. Mm-hmm. So, and she, she tried multiple permutations of this. And pretty much it um, came down, as she says, um, one at one point she had um, the container next to a sink, which had high volume of water flowing. And then on the other side, she introduced a minute amount of moisture actually into the soil. Okay. And previously, the the, the roots had been going towards the, the faucet, which was exterior, because they, they heard the sound, they made the acoustic connection. Um, but then once water was introduced on the other side, kind of like when a, a plant has been growing towards the sun and then you rotate the pot and mm. it's now facing away and it starts to go back, the roots did the same thing. As soon as water was physically present in a different area, the root system started to move huh. and started growing back towards the available water. That's surprising to a certain degree, but and I know I'm sounding like I'm kind of poo-pooing everything, but mm-hmm. by adding the water in there, that makes sense. It's going to have a physical change in the soil. So changing to move towards the actual water versus the hope of water, but then it makes me wonder why they're even going for the hope of water what that's that's where i see more intelligence than the right. going for the water because yeah because they're not detecting the physical presence of the moisture they're hearing the sound of it and associating the sound with water somewhere right I, i'm thinking it's more of a vibration than a sound though because mm-hmm. i've never seen ears on a plant actually they talked about that Okay, I guess so, I'm getting ahead of myself here. Yes, wait, no, that's fine. I love the segue. Have you ever seen a cutaway diagram of an ear? Yeah. Okay. So, in humans, hearing is a mechanical process. Right. Okay, we hear vibrations through air, which is why no one can hear you scream in space. Because it's a vacuum. There's no air molecules to vibrate and pass the mechanical energy of the sound along. Well, that's why sound... There's arguments that that's incorrect, but true. go on. But we could argue that there's insufficient molecules. Right. Which is why sound travels through air, sound travels better through water, sound travels best through solid, because of the higher density of molecular structure to pass the sound along. Okay. Now, there are some solids, obviously, like cork and soundproofing materials that cancel that out. Right. So, if you look at a cutaway drawing of the human ear, you'll notice that there are these little hairs along the ear canal that pick up the vibrations that come through the eardrum. And it's the vibration of those hairs in response to the sound waves that the brain, that then sends signals to the brain, which interpret it as sound. Mm -hmm. If you look at plant roots, like really closely, you'll notice that all of them have these little fine tendrils that come off. And so the theory is those may, because it's really hard to prove that they do, but... The theory is that those may act in similar fashion to the hairs in our ear. So that does, that that actually makes a lot of sense. Now, she also did another experiment. And this was what made me think about the connection to Pavlov. Because she actually referenced that she decided to adapt 
a couple of or Pavlov's experiment to a couple of different plants. Okay. So one of the ones that they looked at was called Mimosa pudica. What's significant about this plant is that it is environmentally reactive. When something that the plant would consider a predator or a threat brushes up against it, it curls up its leaves. Okay. A short time later, it will uncurl them. So, and usually somebody brushes up against it or an animal brushes up against it, curls up the leaves. Um, if there's, they've observed it that in earthquake situations where you have ground tremors, the leaves will curl up as well because it views it as a threat. Right, right. So they decided to see if it could learn not to be threatened. And so what they did was they took it in pots and they set up a mechanical dropping rig that dropped it onto essentially a giant pile of pillows. Okay. And so they dropped it, it landed, it sensed the vibration, it curled up. Sometime later it would uncurl, they'd drop it again. They did this over and over again, and they discovered that after a while, it recognized that there was no threat, and it stopped curling up its leaves. Okay. Then they let them sit for a couple of weeks, and they went back and dropped it again. And the first couple of times they would curl up, but they got to the non-threatened response sooner. They let it wait for a couple of days, and then they did it again, and it reacted in a non-threatening way. So it had learned that it wasn't in a threatening situation. Interesting. Yep. So the other one they did was more closely akin to Pavlov. They wanted to look at response to nutrition. And so since they, they don't really think plants can hear the way we hear, they had to find some kind of stimuli that the plant would react to. And they decided to go with air pressure. Okay. So they set up a fan, and they would turn on the fan, and then turn on the grow light. And in the presence of the grow light, because they, they angled it from one side, so the plant would turn toward the grow light, much like we've seen plants turn towards the sun when you put right. it in the window. And they repeated this over and over again, and then they started to just turn on the fan. And whenever they turned on the fan, the plant would turn towards it because it had associated the increase in air pressure with the imminent arrival of sunlight and thus photosynthesis and nutrition mm-hmm. nice okay that, that's all cool stuff so yeah so and it, there's actually several other um scientists there's one scientist uh stefano mancuso who gave a ted talk about plant root systems and how there are some species of plant that are essentially one giant plant yeah um, yeah and i've also read about symbiotic mm-hmm. especially like in the rainforest you'll have symbiotic yep. plants oh yeah and then um, at one point, he even compares um, the plant root systems to the internet. Because he says if you cut away about 90% of the root system, the plant still functions perfectly normally. And if you crash a whole bunch of computers, the internet still works. Right. <laughs> yeah. All right. So that's what I've got on plants. All right. So let's uh, go ahead and jump into artificial intelligence. So I am going to start out by... I'm giving a definition, a longer definition of artificial intelligence. So artificial intelligence, AI, also known as machine intelligence, is intelligence demonstrated by machines in contrast to the natural intelligence displayed by humans and other animals. In computer science, AI research is defined as the study of intelligent agents, any device that perceives its environment and takes actions that maximize its chance of successfully achieving its goals. Colloquial colloquially colloquially that word the term artificial intelligence is applied when a machine mimics cognitive functions 
that humans associate with other human minds, such as learning and problem solving. The scope of AI is disputed as machines become increasingly capable, tasks considered as requiring intelligence are often removed from the definition. Phenomenon known as the AI effect, leading to the quip, AI is whatever hasn't been done yet. For instance, Optical character recognition is frequently excluded from artificial intelligence, having become a routine technology. Uh, capabilities generally classified as AI as of 2017 include successfully understanding human speech, uh, competing at the highest level in strategic game systems such as chess or Go, autonomous cars, intelligent routing and contact delivery networks, military simulations, and interpreting complex data, including images and videos. So artificial intelligence was founded as an academic discipline in 1956 and in the years since has experienced several waves of optimism followed by disappointment and the loss of funding, known as an AI winter, followed by new approaches, success, and renewed funding. For most of its history, AI research has been divided into subfields that often fail to communicate with each other. The subfields are based on technical considerations such as particular goals. Examples being robotics or machine learning, the use of particular tools such as logic or neural networks, or deep philosophical differences. Subfields have also been based on social factors, particular institutions, or the work of particular researchers. The traditional problems or goals of AI research include reasoning, knowledge, planning, learning, natural language processing, or I'm sorry, natural language processing, perception, and the ability to move and manipulate objects. General intelligence is among the field's long-term goals. The AI field draws upon computer science, mathematics, psychology, linguistics, philosophy, and many others. The field was founded on the claim that human intelligence can be so precisely described that a machine can ma be made to simulate it. This raises philosophical arguments about the nature of the mind and the ethics of creating artificial beings endowed with human-like intelligence, issues which have been explored by myth, fiction, and philosophy since antiquity. Some people also consider AI to be a danger to humanity if it progresses unabatedly. Others believe that AI, unlike previous technological revolutions, will create a risk of mass unemployment. In the 21st century, AI techniques have experienced a resurgence following uh, co concurrent advances in computer power, large amounts of data, and theoretical understanding and AI techniques have, been, have become an essential part of the technology industry, helping to solve many changing problems in computer science. Whew, that's so, a lot. That is a lot. But when, when we think, you know, when I went into, even when I went into researching this, I'm like, artificial intelligence. So we're talking, you know, androids, robots, blah, 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 blah. Right. Lieutenant Commander Data from Star Trek Next Generation. Perfect example. But that's not really what it is. It is more just having machines do more of the processing, so we have to think less. Now, the real problem I see with AI as it becomes more and more prevalent in society is that whole idea of mass unemployment. Right. Because that's, and especially in the lower tier jobs, you know, you're, you, you've already seen it, um, not so much in our area, but I've, I've read articles and stuff about it where you go to McDonald's in LA, there's people in the back, but there's no one serving you anymore. It's all just a kiosk. Right. Actually, um, this past summer when I was visiting family down in Florida, a lot of the McDonald's have kiosks. But because of my food allergies and everything, I have a really complicated order. Yep. And the programmers who programmed the kiosk hadn't given it the versatility to handle my type of 
special request. And so it took them quite a while for even a manager to be able to remember how to run the cash register enough to ring in my order. <laughs> and, you know, and that's going to be that's going to be where the biggest problem is, I, in my opinion. And what do I know? Probably not very much. But in my opinion, mass unemployment, especially in the lower tiers of jobs, is, is where I see an issue. Now, with all that, we could go on and be really dry about artificial intelligence. But I thought it would be more fun to talk about artificial intelligence in the way that most of us are familiar with it. Okay. And that's in movies. All right. So I have I went through a database of movies that use AI. Mm-hmm. And from that database, I drew 10 movies. Okay. Now, hopefully we've seen... Well, I've seen most of them. I, I have not seen all of these because some of these are the classic ones. Mm-hmm. But hopefully between us, we've seen these movies and we can talk about them. So let's start off with one of my favorites. And I never really thought of it as an AI movie until they pointed it out. So... Bicentennial Man from 1999. Oh, Robin Williams. Yes, Correct. I love that film. This not well received, but not half bad AI flick finds accidentally sentient Robo Butler Andrew, played by Robin Williams, mm-hmm. working his way toward full humanity over the course of a 200 year life. The movie wants to be a mediation on what it means to be human, and it has enough moments to be worth streaming, but it gets a little hammy and heavy handed in the second half. I agree with all that. Yes. However,. It was a beautifully done movie, I thought. I really enjoyed it. Um, and it. And it comes back to that whole... I mean, Data was on that same path of, I want to be more human. Mm-hmm. You know, to the point that later on in the movies, he gets an emotion chip and the whole... Yep. You know, the whole thing to be more human. I did like the fact um, that they kind of did this in a way where they were fighting the system. Well, he's a robot, so he can't be human. Right. You know, and that's where it got kind of heavy handed, but I really like that aspect of the movie. Mm-hmm. So I don't know, maybe I like heavy handed stuff, but you know, it's just, it's that classic story. I want to be more human. I fight to be more human. Right. I become human and then I die. And as a human, you go, now why would you do that? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it, if you think about it, it's the AI version of Pinocchio. Yeah. I want to be a real, a real boy. boy. Yes. All right. So let's move on to the next one. Passengers 2016. The true star of this two-hander is android bartender Arthur, played by Michael Sheen. His intelligence is artificial. The robot essentially acts as the conscience and confidant of Chris Pratt's character without even knowing it. His lifelike personality and appearance make him not only an easy character to get along with, but also one of the most realistic in the film, which is true. I have seen Passenger. It's the They are put into stasis because they're going on this long trip to another world to colonize. Okay. And the two main characters wake up out of stasis way too early. And, of course, then as they're going around the ship that's not really meant to have people on it till the very end, mm-hmm. things start to go wrong. And, of course, you know, then they're fighting, trying not to blow up and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Now, I don't know. Have you seen this movie? I have not. Okay. So, but the basic idea is not so much that AI wants to become human because that's not the bartender's goal at all, but the fact that maybe machines can teach us something. Right. So, you know, I, I kind of thought it was an okay movie. I'm glad I didn't see it in the theaters. We rented it, <laughs> you know, kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. But it was it was an okay movie. It was an I'll drop $2 on it, not $20 for two people to go see it right. and have some popcorn. Absolutely. So, next up, I grabbed Westworld from 1973. 
Welcome to a dystopian Disneyland where rich folks pay $1,000 per day for the privilege of shooting it out harmlessly with an android gunslinger. Played by Yul Brenner. Okay. Until, uh-oh, a power surge makes the robot galoot go haywire. Look out, <laughs> city slickers, you're all in big trouble. It's considered a cult favorite. Westworld was rebooted as a series on HBO in 2016, and I guess the second season is coming in 2018. Now, I didn't see the original. I did not either. Okay, but from what I saw on this database, oh god, it looks cheesy. Oh yes. I mean, Yul Brenner is a android, basically. It's mm -hmm. he has hair though. It's weird. Yeah, that would be strange. You know. Yeah. And I'm sure it was a wig because he was. I think he was actually bald, not just he like shaved it. Yeah, I think he he was pretty sparsely haired if okay. at all, and so he just went the whole right. shave and wax and polish the dome yeah exactly so we'll move on to the next one and this one if you haven't seen it i'm going to reach across the table and slap you tron 1982 i love that movie. okay yes once upon a time the dude was like a program man mm -hmm. computer programmer flynn played by jeff bridges gets digitized and became a ghost in the machine where he runs smack dab into an evil ai master control program an early cautionary tale of artificial intelligence run amok tron is all that and a bag of tricks Though the microcomputer world of code and programs may have seemed confusing to the reviewers back in the 1980s, Tron's story seems increasingly clear and straightforward in our more current tech-savvy times, making it somewhat of a cult fave. Indeed, this futuristic head-scratcher now seems charmingly old-timey. Yep. Every time I see Tron, or the new Tron, which has mm -hmm. got better graphics, but it's still pretty much the same thing, yeah. I think of... The video game. No, I oh, hated see, the. I, I, I the hated video the video game. game. No, I think of Shadow. Shadow. Shadowrun. Shadowrun. Thank yep. you. Because it's that With kind of Deckers, Deckers, yeah. and that kind of mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, I haven't seen Tron in a long time because I saw it the first time. I was pretty young. I thought it was pretty damn boring. And now I saw Tron Revisited or whatever they called it, and I really enjoyed that. So I do need to go back and watch Tron again. I just mm -hmm. haven't had the chance. So what about you, Tron? Oh, I loved Tron. So, I mean, the from a, a stylistic standpoint, it was very simplistic. Mm -hmm. And plot-wise, it was definitely good versus evil. But, it, again, looking back on it, when I was a kid and first saw it, I didn't get the whole machines are taking over the world right. warning tale. Uh, I just got the don't have an industrial accident type of message. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> All right, so next we're going to jump to iRobot from 2004. Okay. So this is loosely based on the classic Isaac Asimov story collection, iRobot. It's a bit too Hollywood bombastic for its own good in spots. I would agree with that. Mm -hmm. But the sci-fi noir actioner still has plenty to offer. Hard-broiled cop and robo-hater Del Spooner, played by Will Smith, derides bots as toasters and suspects one of committing murder. Robot pandemonium soon breaks loose as thousands of androids attack in a blizzard of amazing special effects. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. It, it was an amazing show. It's not the way I see the machines taking over. I think it'll be a lot more subtle than that right. when they when they finally take us over. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, for our own good, of course. Yes. Because it's in accordance with the third or the three, three laws, laws of robotics, right? Right. Which was promulgated by Asimov in it, not and only that's, just and the let's I be robot. honest, that's where iRobot, the story, and the movie separate. Well, that that I found that to be pretty much the only place they had in common. That's exactly what yeah. I'm saying. Is, is mm -hmm. that's that was it? They're like, yeah. we're going to use his three laws. We're going to name it after his book, and then we're just going to throw the rest away. 
Well, they did the same thing with Philip K. Dick's Minority Report that became the Tom Cruise film. Right. They took the the basic premise, which is the police have people who can see the future, and they arrest people for crimes that they're going to commit. Yeah, I, that, that has always kind of, like, blown my mind, but... Well, and that, that was what Dick's point was. I mean, his one of his other stories, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which was the basis for the film Blade Runner. Okay. And Blade Runner, again, is you have the android played by the um, new-to-Hollywood Melanie Griffith, and amazingly beautiful, um, <laughs> is one of a series of andro- lifelike androids who are on the verge of awakening and like sentience and self-awareness okay and that was the whole premise behind the star trek next generation season two episode seven measure of a man where data is on trial for his existence whether he is a sentient being with all the rights and protections there too or if he's a piece of equipment right so and i'm gonna point this out here i did not put star wars or star trek on this list that was a conscious decision yep because everybody knows those. Yes. And so I just didn't I didn't use those. So next up was what I personally thought was a horrible movie. I don't know what your thoughts on it. I'm going to guess you've seen it. Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy from 2005. Oh. That was a horrible movie, was it not? Yes. So who's to say whether a super intelligent robot future is a good thing? Certainly not Marvin, a paranoid android who provides the gloomy cosmic slash comic relief in the movie version of Douglas Adams' cult classic series of books. Even having Radiohead name a song after you couldn't cheer Marvin, who is known to say things like, Life? <laughs> Don't talk to me about life. Hilariously voiced by Alan Rickman, which was a highlight of the whole thing. Yes. Uh, this is artificial sentience laced with ridiculously profound depression. If we can give our robot overlords of the future this kind of emotional baggage, we may stand a fighting chance against them. <laughs> it was a horrible movie, but I get where they were... I kind of get what they were trying to do with the book. Because there are parts of the book that are slow and laborious and very hard to get through. At yes. least in my opinion. Yes. Overall, good book, good series. Mm-hmm. But there are parts where, like the beginning of the book, where the guy's just sitting in his house and you're just like... Somebody just run him over with that with that bulldozer. Bulldozer, just run him over, just be done with him. Yep. <laughs> you know. So, but let's move on. Now, one of my favorite, I guess, robot movies. I never really thought of it as AI, but I guess it really is. Short Circuit, 1986. <laughs> I love that film. Of all the films to drop artificial intelligence into, Short Circuit picked up Buddy Flick. The stakes aren't as dire as many AI films, it's not set in a dystopian future, and the story is planted firmly on Earth. But that's what makes this story noteworthy. Johnny Five, the robot in question, is being pursued by the evil government. But so much of the story is rooted in a sense of fun that you just don't often find in movies like this. And really, the only thing, I kept, I kept going back to the movie in my head going, how is this AI, okay, he's a, he's, he's a robot. And then I kept going, what is his standard line? Johnny Five is alive, mm-hmm. you know? Yep. And I'm like, that's where, <laughs> you yep. know? But also, think about it. You have um, the human actors, Steve Gutenberg, Ali Sheedy. Johnny Five has a crush on Ali Sheedy's character. Well, can you he blame even, him? Oh, I know. He even <laughs> brings her flowers. Yep. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's... Of all the movies on this list, that is probably the one that I would say, that's the one to watch. It's cute. It's it's. They call it a buddy movie, but it's almost kind of got a... A buddy movie with a love interest on the side, right. kind of. I mean, 
it, it's actually really good. And Steve Gutenberg, though I'm not a fan of all his work, I thought he did great in this movie. Yes. It, it played to his strengths. Yes. So the next movie we're going to talk about is AI, Artificial Intelligence 2001. The, For, the Haley Joel Osment? Yep. Okay. Have you seen it? I have, yes. I have not. So you get to talk about this one. But <laughs> programming love into an android boy who is used to seeing dead people, Haley Joel Osment, sounds like a recipe for disaster. But this robot riff on Pinocchio is cram-packed with fun stuff to like. Maybe too much. Gloomy genius Stanley Kubrick handed off the project to genial film savant Steven Spielberg because he was dissatisfied with the special effect in the 90s. But by the time Spielberg cranked this out in 2001, the state of art had progressed mightily. It is future, it's a futuristic fairy tale, detective story, slash domestic drama featuring one life lesson. When a droid can love, he can also die of a broken heart, only to be frozen in a glacier and revived years later after the AIs have taken over for, for the now extinct humans. Yeah, there's a lot going on. <laughs> but it's hard to argue that with any film that typecast Jude Law as an android male prostitute. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> you get to talk about so, this one. No, well, it's been so long since I've seen oh, it. Okay. Um, but yeah, it it had its moments of drama. It had its uh, more than its fair share of moments of sap. So it is it is it worth a watch though? Um, I think so. It it would definitely be. Actually, it would be a pretty good date movie. Okay. Because it it's not hammering on the science so okay. much. It's more um, pushing the relationship aspect and exploring how this non-living thing can experience living emotions. Okay, fair enough. Now, the next one, I had, I believe, four, four titles that I could have chosen from, but I went with The Terminator, 1984. As AI becomes more advanced, what happens when it is able to reason and decides that humans are unnecessary. Yep. Artificial intelligence is the ultimate enemy here, one that simply cannot be beaten with time travel. That's what makes the sequels, in which AI also becomes the hero. So special. Yep. In exploring both sides of AI, Cameron showed the world just how bad things could get in worst case scenario with AI. Now, I could have went with Terminator 2, where the AI is the hero. Mm-hmm. But basically, it's it's just a it was put out there to scare you. I think you know, um, like again, like I said, I don't think when, when the machines take over, it's not going to be that blatant. Blatant. They're mm-hmm. gonna they're gonna figure out a, a much easier way to do it because they'd much rather have us as slaves than to kill us off. Yeah. Or as a food supply, like they do in the Matrix. Yep. Yeah, that was one of them I could have done on here as well, but I didn't. Yep. And we're going to wrap up with one that has been on my list to watch for I don't know how many years, and I've never gotten to it. Is it has it been on your list for 2001 years? Probably not, but pretty close. Okay. Yeah. 2001 <laughs> A Space Odyssey, made in 1968. So this Stanley Kubrick masterpiece still holds up decades later, telling the story of a human race as it is guided to evolve from cavemen to star child by a strange alien force. While investigating this mystery on a flight to Jupiter, the ship's crew gets double-crossed by its sentient computer, Hal. When infallible, Hal makes an odd error, the astronauts decide to shut him down. But Hal catches wind of the plan and kills most of the crew. Before the mission can continue, Dave, the lone surviving astronaut, shuts down Hal as the computer pleads for mercy. Of course, this is where the classic line of, You can't do that, Dave. Yep, or... Dave, I can't do that. Or mm-hmm. some, some. I've never seen it, so I don't know exactly the mm-hmm. line. But yeah. I take it you've seen it. I have seen parts of it. I, I okay. have not actually sat down and watched the whole thing. 
right. So what do you think in general, Scott, about AI? I think at this point in our technological advancement, it's an inevitability. We're, we're going, we already have so much of it in so many different aspects of our lives. And we have smart speakers with names, mm -hmm. Siri, Alexa, Alexa. Yep. Dot, whatever. Um, we had the, the movie Her, where the guy has the relationship with the AI on his smartphone. So, and if you step back a bit and go back to your original definition of machine intelligence and everything, we already have machines that are building more sophisticated machines as they learn through experience in industrial settings and laboratory settings, things like that. I mean, we have computers that design better computers. Right. So, so in, in a sense, we've, we've already pushed the snowball off the top of the hill. Right. And now we just got to see where it ends up. Right. All right. So now you're going to talk humans. We're finally getting to us. Yes. So let's talk about us. All right. Do you know what the term IQ is? Do you understand IQ? It's your intelligence quotient. Right. What it is? No, I don't. Under, I don't. Okay. So IQ itself can be traced back to World War One. Okay. Psychologist Lewis Terman in 1916 first came up with the concept, and he actually developed a scale. Um, a 90 to 109 was considered normal or average. So it's basically right on either side of 100 okay. is, is considered normal. Um, and then it goes up to 110 to 119 was superior, 120 to 140 was very superior, over 140 was genius. Going the other way, if you were 80 to 89 at the time, you were called dull. 70 to 79, you were classed as borderline deficiency, and under 70, you were classed as feeble-minded. Okay. Now, today... We still use these ranges. But we call them but, something different? Well, they're, they're classified as grades of mental retardation. Okay. So it's basically um, classifying and quantifying a certain individual's capacity to perform a standard set of daily living tasks. Okay. So now I'm going to pull out a picture and show it to you. All right. Uh, it's essentially a standard bell curve. Yep. Because researchers, especially psychologists, love bell curves and standard deviations. And so, so now when you talk about average intelligence, because I'm looking at the bar mm -hmm. thing here, and it shows that 85% of people are in that standard level of intelligence. Is that? Am I reading that right? Um, let's see. We've got... Uh, no, it, well, this, this is breaking down uh, levels of mental retardation. Um, the chart itself has 68% of people score within in the 85 to 115 IQ range. Okay, so, so I misread the number. That's yeah. what I did. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then 96% of people fall between 70 and 130. Okay. So, um, and then it, there's a couple more charts. 115 to 124 is considered above average. And as an example, it, it gives a successful university student, so someone pursuing an undergraduate degree. 125 to 134 would be a postgraduate. They'd be classed as gifted. 135 to 144 is highly gifted. 145 to 154 is genius, a la a PhD or so on. 155 to 164 is a higher level genius, a la Nobel Prize winner. 
165 to 179 is high genius. 180 to 200 is highest genius. And above 200 is considered unmeasurable. Okay. Now, they they don't have a record of an actual IQ test administered to him, but retroactively looking at what he did and everything, Einstein would only have been given a 160. Yeah, I just I just watched a thing on um, IQs of, of famous people. Mm-hmm. And that was one that kind of... They gave a range of 150 to 170, but, yep. I mean, 160 is right there, so... Mm-hmm. Now, as with artificial intelligence, lots of different people classify it differently. Um, some definitions are the ability to carry out abstract thinking, so not just uh, instinctive or animalistic reaction to stimuli. The capacity to learn or to profit by experience. Uh, there's one. Appropriately enough, the scientist who coined it was named Boring. <laughs> intelligence is what is measured by intelligence tests. <laughs> there, there's some argument to that, I think. Yes. In fact, in, in a lot of circles, there's arguments against standardized tests because the tests tend to favor people who are like the people who wrote them. Right. I've always, even when I was a kid, I never liked standardized tests. I always scored like really high in English and those kind of things, mm-hmm. but average to even slightly below average in things like math. Right. You know, and I, and it's because I learn differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I am, and by no means am I anywhere outside. I, well, I don't know. I don't know what my IQ is, but I would say I, there's nowhere I'm outside of that normal range of intelligence. Yep. And I'm a hands-on guy. Like. So you would be classed as a kinesthetic learner. You learn by doing. Right. Yeah. So like math in high school was, I mean, what's the, what's the math they teach in high school? Um, Algebra, calculus, algebra. geometry. Algebra, I was horrible in. I barely passed that class. They put me in geometry, and I aced it because I reasoned differently. Right. You know. You you could see the relations to sides and angles and the shapes and all of that. Right. But you you give me a linear equation, and I'm like, there's some letters. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I can read those. <laughs> I, I know letters. Yep. But okay. uh, so yeah, I get where standardizing te- standardized tests can be. A problem, but I also get why they use them. Right. And it, it's one of those things, are you measuring intelligence or are you measuring their ability to take the test? Like, for me, I've always been one who excels at standardized tests. But as a teacher, what do you think of standardized tests? I hate them. Okay. They are excellent for grading quickly, but and it a lot of times it, it depends on the subject matter as well. Now, if I'm giving a standardized test on dates in history, I'm not measuring reasoning skill. I'm measuring the student's ability to memorize Mm -hmm. a bunch of dates. Standardized test works fine. Most math applications, a standardized test works well. Grammatical elements of English, rules of writing sentences, standardized test works. Reasoning and making inferences and extrapolations about literature, it doesn't work. So Well, as a teacher, though, when you give a test, you give the same test to every student in your class, right? No. Oh, really? No, uh, because I have a range of students, uh, some of whom have what are called accommodations due to some type of diagnosed mm-hmm. condition. Uh, and that falls under the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Individual Dis- with Disabilities Education Act, or IDEA. And so um, there are some students that get modified tests. 
However, I don't take a test and say, okay, this is for my average kids and then make a tougher test for my above average kids. The only adaptations I make are for students who are legally entitled. Right. So outside, outside of the, the kids with, um, with special, uh, provisions, mm -hmm. you give everybody the same yes. test. Mm -hmm. Okay. But isn't that kind of a standardized test? I mean, um, to a certain extent, what most people talk about with standardized tests is, uh, something administered large scale, either statewide or nationwide. Right. Right. I get that. And, but what, what, And I, almost always it's, um, some kind of multiple choice. Now, say, for example, in my literature classes, I may give everybody, like, uh, for example, I just gave them a quiz today where they had a short essay response. Okay. They got to choose between three questions. Okay. And then um, each person's answer is going to be different because they're writing a short essay. Right. So, I mean, from that point of view, it probably takes you longer to create, create those things. It, it also takes me longer to create them because... Um, there's a, a wave that's sweeping the country right now in education called Universal Design for Learning. Okay. Which, kind of like IQ, actually goes back to the military. Okay. Um, in the, the military, it used to be that fighter jets were designed for the average pilot. 5'8", 150 pounds with arm length of this. And what they were finding was they didn't actually have any pilots who fit the cockpits. Right. And so they would do things like they put the seat in the cockpit on the rails like your car seat has. So you can move it back and forth. They had a, other adjustable things that could be done to customize it to the individual pilot. And it wasn't things like the entire jet was customized to that pilot, but it was things that could be adjusted as needed, right. whoever's flying it. Right. So the original IQ with um, Lewis Terman was used to screen recruits in World War One. The okay. US Army. So, and they would they take this test, and um, today a lot of places use the Wonderlick assessment, which is kind of an outgrowth of that. In fact, uh, the NFL Combine administers it, excuse me, to potential draft picks. Okay. Now, what a lot of people like more than the standard IQ test, and one of the ones that is used a lot is the Stanford Binet. It was developed by Dr. Binet at Stanford University, which is how it came by its name. Well, at least we know they they're really creative with naming things. Yes. Um, another one is the WASI, okay. which is the Wexler Abbreviated Scale of Intelligence. There's the Wexler Full Scale, which is more in-depth. But what that looks at is it has four subtests, vocabulary, block design, similarities, and matrix reasoning. Okay. So it, it's not so dependent upon previous factual knowledge the way a lot of the earlier IQ tests were, but it was more looking at your ability to make connections between things. Okay. Which is what a lot of researchers nowadays are saying. That's what human intelligence is. You're making the connections between things. Okay. So now one thing I want to wrap up with is I actually found, uh, well, I found a chart. Uh, actually, my elementary school administered IQ tests on a regular basis. Oh, really? Yes. And what was really creepy was it would then publish it. That so is kind of creepy. They this was before all of the confidentiality right, things and whatever. Right, but still, that's a little like, that's like, yeah. these are the kids you want your kids to hang out with. Yeah, or these are the kids you're going to beat up if they don't do your homework. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I found one chart that said two-thirds of the population fall between 85 and 115. About 2.5% of the population are above that 130. 
and 2.5 are below 75. So, but again, scientists love bell curves, and a lot they of do. times they'll massage the data to make it fit. Well, otherwise you have a strange bump in your bell curve. Yes. So, all right. So the highest IQ ever recorded, okay, um, was from an American from New York named William James Cetus. Um, he was born in 1898, died in 1944. Okay. Um, he was attributed a score between 250 and 300. But I thought you couldn't measure above 200. Exactly. That's part of the problem. So uh, according to the historical record, uh, by five, he was able to type and had learned Greek, Latin, French, Hebrew, Russian, German, and English. He was just showing off. Yes. <laughs> um Harvard turned him down when he applied at the ripe old age of six. Oh. But by the time he was 11, they thought he was mature enough, and they let him in. Okay. Um, he became a teacher in Texas, um, but did not have a very successful life. Um, he died uh, broke at age 46. Now, current living... Well, actually, one, a couple of them are no longer living, so this is a little outdated. Uh, but people that you may have heard of. Okay. Um, for example, the recently deceased Stephen Hawking is attributed a score of approximately 160. Yep. Albert Einstein, uh, this one attributes between 160 and 190. Okay. Judith Polgar, uh, who is a Hungarian chess player born in 76, uh, she has 170. Uh, Philip M. A. Aguali, uh, from Nigeria, only went to school until age 13 because of the Nigerian Civil War. Uh, he earned his high school diploma through self-study afterwards. At 13, he was actually put into the Army. Okay. Um, he's attributed a score of 190. Uh, he is a computer scientist, mathematician, engineer, and geologist with several postgraduate degrees from different universities. Um, then we have Gary Kasparov, uh, attributed 194. He's from Azerbaijan. We have Christopher Michael Langan from California who posited the cognitive theoretic model of the universe, uh, was speaking by six months and reading by age three, as attributed a score between 190 and 210. Wow. Edith Stern, PhD mathematician, engineer, and IBM inventor, with a score of more than 200. Uh, when she was 11 months old, she was able to communicate using cards. Uh, by age of one, she was able to identify some letters. By two, she knew the entire alphabet. Started college at 12 and was a teacher herself by 16. Uh, then we have Kim Ung-yong of Korea. He is a professor at Chongbuk National University. Learned to speak at six months. Um, his native Korean, by the age of six, he could read Korean, English, German, and Japanese. Began writing at four and earned his first PhD at 16. Wow. Uh, and he has an IQ of 210. Christopher Hirata who is an astronomy professor at Ohio State University. Uh, he's American, born in 1982, and he has attributed a score of 225. Uh, at age 13, he won the gold medal at the International Physics Olympiad, started working for NASA at 16, and earned his PhD from Princeton at 22. Wow. Then we have someone who a lot of newspaper readers will recognize, uh, Marilyn Vosavant. She was born in Missouri in 1946. She has a syndicated column, Ask Marilyn. Uh, she is actually in the Guinness Book of World Records as the highest IQ uh, that was entered in 1986. To this day, there are only two other people with recorded IQs higher than her, 
and hers is at 20 or 228. But then the the last one is Terence Tao. He's an Australian American born in Adelaide. Uh, his parents had emigrated from Hong Kong to Australia, earned a PhD in math at 20, uh, and he has won several math awards, including the Fields Medal, which a, a lot of people equate as the Nobel Prize for math, because Nobel doesn't actually have a math prize. Okay. One of the things that I like about the Wexler is that, it, as I said, it, it doesn't work off of prior knowledge, and its score rankings aren't numerical. It, it's actually descriptive. Okay. Things, um, like... Non-proficient, proficient, highly proficient, very highly proficient, extremely highly proficient. Okay. So, and one of the things that they actually use it for a lot of the times is um, occupational therapy for people who've been in traumatic accidents. Oh, okay. In fact, when I was in my explosion, when I was uh, going through occupational therapy because I also suffered head trauma, they had me run through a series of these tests as well. Okay. So, and I was pretty happy. The only one that I didn't do really well on was the one where I had to look at a picture and then reproduce it, like draw it out. And they said that they'd give me the benefit of the doubt because I was right-handed and my right wrist and shoulder were injured in the explosion and I couldn't actually move my hand very much. Oh, okay. <laughs> so they said, well, okay, you've either got a, a broken hand trying to draw or you're trying to draw with your off hand. Okay. So we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. Perfect. So... I think this was a really informative episode. Um, and long. Long. Yeah, we probably could have gotten rid of a couple of these topics, but I think they were all actually quite important to the topic that we were talking about. Let's give a quick update on uh, Eclectic Media Project. Okay. So we've got a logo in process. Yep. We've got um, – we're starting to talk to people about a web page. Yes. So we're getting there. We actually have some sort of an update. Um, we've talked to uh, a certain degree about what we're going to do on the website. So not only will it be podcasts, um, we will have um, hopefully artists that will be wanting to put their stuff yep. out there. Um, we're going to do some educational stuff. Um, hopefully we'll do some uh, videos and, and those kind of things as well. So it's going to be it's going to be eclectic. Yes, <laughs> especially keep an eye out for our blooper reels, because you hear our edited versions. Our unedited versions will, even on some of the drier topics, will probably have you falling out of your chair. Yeah, that's true, and, and I think that's maybe something we should do. And actually, to that end, I have always saved the, the raw cuts as well as the edited cuts. Of course, it's awesome blackmail material. <laughs> <laughs> So anyway, um, with that, uh, again, thank you for listening. Uh, as always, drop us a line. Let us know what you think of this episode or any other episode that you've listened to. Um, we started getting people on Facebook leaving us messages. I don't know if you saw it yet or not. Uh, I am definitely a Luddite. I do as little technology as I possibly can. I was just going to say, I know you're not on Facebook very much, so I'll show you later. Yep. Um, but so we're starting to see some feedback, which is great. Um, you know, we might've seen it sooner have had the fact, but we do a once a month podcast. So right. you can drop us an email at want to hear something interesting, interesting at gmail.com or of course at eclectic media project at gmail.com. Otherwise you can find us online and Facebook at want to hear something interesting podcast or at POI network. Um, either way, drop us a line. Let us know what you're thinking. Ideas for uh, topics for us to do. Or just let us know what you think of the project 
overall. So with that, I want to say thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next month. Adios. You have been listening to a program from the Point of Insanity Network. Visit us at poigamestudio.podbean.com for more shows. Follow us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at POI Game Studio.